This is Mises Weekends with your host, Jeff Dice. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to Mises Weekends. Our show this week features a talk I gave recently to some young people at our summer Mises University titled, What You Can Do. And it is all about how and why it's easier than ever to spread the correct Austrian view of economics to their friends, to their family, and in society generally. So this is a motivational talk for some young people about the state, the positive state of Austrian economics today. Stay tuned. Before we get started, this is not an academic uh, session this afternoon. There's a couple of other academic sessions one could attend, but uh, uh, this is really a session aimed at, at those of you, especially those of you who are here, students who are younger, who aren't academics and may never become academics like myself. But before we start, you know, I'd really just like to say, if I had lived in a perfect world, the Mises Institute would be considered an alternative school. It would be a school that people could go to, not necessarily when they're young or, or school age, they, it's something that they could go to throughout their lives. It wouldn't necessarily be a place that they come to physically. They might just sort of use it as a school that's strictly online via Mises.org. They might not come uh, all at one time. They might come intermittently or sporadically. Uh, they might have different preferences as to how much education they consume from the Mises Institute. In other words, you could consider it a school, but the only amount of education you personally desire is you follow our Twitter feed, and every once in a while you click on an article and learn something from it two or three times a year, and that's all you want, versus other people who decide that Austrian economics is their motivating uh, impulse in life, and they come here, and they spend time with us in our libraries, and they're a summer fellow, and they go on and get a PhD in economics and, and teach as an academic for their entire career. So anyone at either end and, and in between ought to be able to view the Mises Institute as a school and always free, always online, and always available. So that's really what we hope. That's where we want the Mises Institute to go and we what we want it to be. So we really sort of shy away from thinking of ourselves or considering ourselves a think tank, don't much like that term, or, or public policy, really, really don't much like that term. <laughs> There shouldn't be any public policy. You should set your own policies. But that said, I just want to start with a little anecdote that I got from a Gary North article. He was writing about the South Royalton Conference that was alluded to earlier this week that occurred in, in the state of Vermont in 1974 that had a lot of now famous Austrian scholars at it, but it really represented a, an early gathering of this renaissance. And Gary North says, well, you know, at this point, Mises had just died the previous fall in 1973, but it was almost like he had died in 1940. If you had mentioned the name Mises to the average academic, even at that time, in the early 1970s, he would have said, you mean Richard Mises? Referring to Mises's, Ludwig von Mises' brother, Richard, who was a, it was a, a measurably famous mathematician and statistician at Harvard who had come, was born a couple years later, but had also come to the United States and was quite successful. Uh, he wrote a treatise actually called Probability, Statistics, and Truth all the way back in the 1920s. He had some success even in, in uh, aviation engineering as a field, so he was a really brilliant guy. But as recently as, as 1974, people might have thought you were referring to Richard Mises. And of course, Gary North points out that Ludwig von Mises was, was sort of an old-fashioned curiosity, one of those uh, economists who didn't write using any equations or any charts and graphs, just uses words. 
So if we think about that, if you fast forward now 45 years later, even Mises' most ardent critics, the most brutal Marxist or Keynesian, would have to admit that he was one of the most influential economists of the 20th century and had a huge impact. I think that's true. I think even his worst enemies would now admit that he was a formidable economist. And we have to think about how remarkable that really is, to have a renaissance in your work and an appreciation for your work after you're gone. How many academics can say that? How many people in any field can really say that? Most of us, of course, fade into obscurity after we die. I mean, how many people in this room can name uh, the, the chair of the Harvard Economics Department in, in, from 1975? How many people in America can even name a couple of former Federal Reserve chairs? So in that sense, I think, despite Ludwig von Mises' rocky path in academia, he's actually, in a sense, having the last laugh uh, with respect to his legacy. And of course, there's a lot of people responsible for the fact that he's better known today than it, during his own life. Uh, certainly his wife, Margaret, worked very hard. Uh, uh, Bettina and Percy Graves worked very hard. Leonard Reed worked very hard. Some people in this building worked very hard to resurrect that legacy. But now I think it's fairly solidified. So what I'd like to talk to you all today about is what we could do and what you could do over the next, over the next 45 years. Uh, to promote what we all think is the correct and proper and sound school of economics, which we loosely term Austrian economics. But first, I'd like to give a few caveats. It's a bit of a loaded term. I, I personally like the idea of using the term Austrian economics as a broad term of convenience and, and one that allows for plenty of disagreement. And Joe Salerno actually wrote an article uh, called about the sociology of the Austrian school. And he, he defines it for us, I think, in a way that's that's pretty perfect uh, for both ecumenical outreach but also distinguishing ourselves. He says, well, the essence of Austrian economics is the structure of economic theorems is arrived at through a process of praxeological deduction. So, of course, not everybody believes in a prioriisms, not, not everybody believes in praxeology and in deductive knowledge. So, in a sense, I think that definition is broad enough to include a lot of diverse thought and friendly enough to those who maybe don't agree but would be fellow travelers in, in the sense of promoting free markets. But it's not so ecumenical to be the at the point of sort of papering over our very real differences between the Austrian school and other free market schools. Now, and as Joe points out, definitions are inherently exclusionary. So we shouldn't shy away from it to get along with others or seek status. I think that's a mistake. But I, I, I'd also like to, to mention that when I use the term we, especially in this room, who, who do I mean by we? Am I being presumptuous? Because I'm not a PhD economist, and most of you aren't as well. So when I say we, do I primarily mean PhD academics? Well, it's, it's interesting that a couple of different phenomena over the past 10 years really brought this out. It really brought out sort of the insularity, and I might even say the jealousy of academia. And the first, of course, was the Ron Paul 2008 and 2012 campaigns. And Ron was out there on the hustings at places like Berkeley and BYU mentioning Murray Rothbard and mentioning Ludwig von Mises. And so average people were going to Amazon and going, who is this? And, and, and starting to read books by Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard. And of course, any sensible person would say, hey, this is great but not academics. Sometimes they can be a little jealous. Sometimes they have a tendency to say, well, I want to take my ball and go home because they don't want anyone, especially lay people, intruding on their turf. 
And we saw this also with the release of the Thomas Piketty book. Uh, the Frenchman, even though this book was meant for a, a, lay, a mainstream lay audience, uh, there was a lot of discussion back and forth uh, amongst professional economists saying, oh, the public doesn't get this, they don't understand, they're reading about this stuff. Okay, well, that might be true. But that's not how Ludwig von Mises saw it. You, might, you probably heard his famous quote that economics shouldn't be relegated to statistical offices or, or merely esoteric debate. He actually said, it is the philosophy of human life and action and concerns everybody and everything it is the pith of civilization and a man's human existence. Well, that's pretty broad. I read that to include me. And, and Mises saw economics as really the stuff of everyday life, sub, a subject that not only everyone should consider, but really everyone had a responsibility to consider. And he also recognized that virtually all political issues are economics at their core, or they concern economics. And he certainly thought that ceding authority to supposed experts over something so integral to our daily lives was just an unforgivable sin. And for our topic today, I think this quote, forgive me, it's a, it's a tad long, but it really gets to what we're talking about. He says, there is no means by which anyone can evade his personal responsibility. You have a responsibility to study economics? Maybe you do. Whoever neglects to examine to the best of his abilities all the problems involved voluntarily surrenders his birthright to a self-appointed elite of supermen. In such vital matters, blind reliance upon experts and uncritical acceptance of popular catchwords and prejudices, we have some of those going around these days, living wage, is tantamount to the abandonment of self-determination and to yielding to other people's domination. As conditions are today, of course he's writing this in the latter version of human action, so in the 40s, nothing can be more important to every intelligent man than economics. His own fate and that of his progeny is at stake. So I read that, and I'm, it, it's just really a pretty remarkable and bold thing to say. And that's why I think analogies that a lot of people draw between economics and other social and even physical sciences are wrong. We're not, we're not asking average people to perform technical economics. We're not, any, any more than we're asking them to pilot a Boeing 787 or determine the bridge tension for a new construction project in their town. It's different. We're asking them to have a basic understanding of the economic world that surrounds us so that they're able to lead competent lives and especially to not lead themselves vulnerable to the political class and their bad policy ideas. So average people, I would argue, should understand the housing crash of 2008, should understand the Great Depression, should be able to articulate why raising minimum wage to $100 doesn't work. Because we, all of us in this room would be alarmed if we sent our kids to school and they graduated from, let's say, high school unable to uh, write and complete sentences or perform basic algebra or balance a checkbook or make change at a cash register. But we don't mind sending them out into the world completely vulnerable and naked without a single economics class, completely vulnerable to politicians and supposed experts. And this is, of course, why people like Bernie and Ocasio-Cortez are gaining traction. So when it comes to the Mises Institute, we make no apology for appealing to intelligent laypersons of every persuasion. Anyone who's interested is our potential audience. And on the contrary, we're actually, and I will certainly speak for myself, we're actually quite proud to view ourselves as support staff, in a sense, for all the great academic thinkers out there, many of them dead, some of them still alive. 
I have no problem with the term that Hayek coined, a secondhand dealer in ideas. How many of us are really brilliant enough to make original or, or advanced uh, it, it increases in the edifice of economics or libertarianism or anything else? But we don't have to do that. We don't have to be brilliant. We just have to be diligent. In other words, we merely have to promote an edifice that has already been built by others. So that's a huge advantage if you think about it. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. As lay people doing this, endeavoring to do this, we have an obligation. And I'm sure you've also heard Murray Rothbard's great quote that it's no crime to be ignorant of economics, but it is a crime and irresponsible to have loud and vociferous opinions on economics. And so this is where the actual work comes in. There's a great article by Matt McCaffrey who's here this week, and he says, economics is the most discussed but least studied field of human inquiry. And I think that's true because people actually, people do have loud and vociferous uh, opinions on economics based on nothing. They, they don't have opinions in the same way of, about how to best pilot a, a, an advanced aircraft or on structural bridge engineering. So we have a responsibility, all of us in this room, I think, to not be ignorant. And that means we have to be better than average people. They get their economics from Twitter or from MSNBC. You know, some people in this room have to be willing to read 900-page books. You have to be willing to engage in serious thought and to do serious work. Because to be a good and effective advocate for what we all believe is true takes some work. Some work is required. And maybe that means reading at night instead of Netflix. Who knows? Everything's a trade-off. But we definitely need a constant process of reading and educating ourselves. But here's, here's a, a bit of good news. Before self-help became this sort of disreputable genre, feel-good, self-esteem racket, there's actually a pretty interesting uh, genre of self-help books in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. It was primarily aimed at salespeople because back then sales meant sales, like knocking on people's doors and actually asking them face-to-face. -face. And there's a very famous self-help guru of, of that era named Og Mendito. I wonder if anyone in this room knows that name. But he came up with, with what he called the greatest secret in the world. The greatest secret in the world is that you only have to be a small, measurable amount better than mediocrity, and you've got it made. And I think that's really true, and I think all of you see that because so many young people are not reading, so many young people are not intellectual, they're not diligent, they're, they're obsessed with social media and Netflix and diversions, and they don't put aside the time to do the work. So you don't have to be the next great Austrian economics genius to have an impact. You just have to show up and be better than your peers. And certainly just by virtue of being here this week and absorbing whatever you absorb, you already know more about economics than 99% of the population walking around. Don't kid yourself about the level of economic ignorance in the general population. So think about that. You're already way ahead of the game. But more importantly, if, if not you guys, then whom? I mean, who, who is coming to save us? Nobody. But I want to just mention for a bit or explore that while we tend to see ourselves as outside of mainstream economics, the status quo might actually be better than we think and that sometimes we fail to understand this. I'm sure some of you in this room know the name Gary Becker. Does that ring a bell with any of you? Gary Becker was a Nobel Prize winning economist. Uh, he was at uh, Harvard for many years, 
uh, I'm sorry, he was at Columbia for many years and later at the University of Chicago. And during his time at Columbia, he was Walter Block's dissertation advisor. And Walter Block uh, really liked him, really uh, stayed in contact with him over the years. Now, he died in 2014, I believe. But he actually won a Nobel Prize in 1992, applying economic theory to family and voting and what he called human capital and discrimination and crime. A lot of areas that had previously been associated with other social sciences like demography and sociology and criminology. And of course, that always gets you in trouble when you step on the toes of other disciplines. But this is what Walter wrote to him in an email, and Walter shared some of these email exchanges with him. And since he's been dead a couple of years now, I, I think it's, it's okay to uh, at least quote a little bit of his private conversations. And here's Walter saying, you are by far the most significant element of my graduate education. I shall never forget the joy of being your student and the inspiration you provided me. Well, that's, those are pretty sweet words from Walter. And, and uh, if, that's, if that's the case, then I think we ought to give this gentleman some credit. And he was considered kind of a conservative but mainstream economist, and certainly not an Austrian or necessarily Austrian friendly. But nonetheless, he won a Nobel Prize. He's an important guy. And here's something he said back to Walter in an email exchange. This is the early 2000s. He said, I believe mainstream economics has absorbed much of what had once been valuable in Austrian economics, such as the importance of the distribution of knowledge, the grave problems of socialism, and the importance of entrepreneurs. Well, think about that. Those are actually pretty remarkable statements. Those are huge concessions coming from a Nobel winner. He is, he is effectively acknowledging Hayek's knowledge problem. He's acknowledging Mises on socialist calculation. He's acknowledging Mises and Kersner on the entrepreneurial process. So we might wish that mainstream economists gave more weight to Austrian views on money and interest rates and business cycles and a whole host of things. But because of that, we imagine ourselves sometimes less influential than we are. We don't see all the progress we've made and the opportunity around us. And I think the proof of this is really found in the lip service that the current sort of political mainstream around in the West, what we might call neoliberalism, the lip service that they give to markets and capitalism. Now, I, I know neoliberal is sort of an ill-defined term, and it really it can mean anyone from uh, Hillary Clinton to Christine Lagarde to Emmanuel Macron to, to Bono from U2. You know, they talk about social democracy, they talk about egalitarianism, the regulatory state, they talk about technocratic control of money, but they don't openly advocate or at least admit to advocating open socialism. In fact, the, the real socialists, the full socialists like Bernie and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they criticize the neoliberals as too capitalist. So either the neoliberals have changed their minds on capitalism and markets, at least partially, or they think it's at least necessary to hide their true intentions. And I think that's because, certainly since relative to 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, they have some grudging respect for what markets have done and what capitalism has done, and by default, what free market economists have accomplished. It's not just neoliberals. We're actually having, I think, an impact on the left. And you can certainly see this in their mindset, if any of you are, are familiar with the Uncoke My Campus groups, which are gaining traction all of They're a little worried. They're a little worried. You know, every once in a while, I will get a call from a reporter. And reporters are always very nice at the outset, before they write something terrible about the Mises Institute. 
But they outset, you know, they always start talking to me about X, Y, and Z, and I can always tell that what they're writing is a hit piece against the Cokes. It's always, it's always pretty obvious. And I, I recently got a call from a, a, a journalist, The Chronicle of Higher Education, which if you ever look at that website, which against all odds is mostly paywalled. Uh, incredible to me that that drivel uh, gets paid for. <laughs> but The Chronicle of Higher Education, it, it reads like a, a, a it's, it's the tumbler of websites. Or the, it's, a, it's, the, it's, it's like the Sweden of education websites. It's absolutely unbelievable. So, you know, my antenna go up when he tells me he's from the Chronicle of Higher Education. And so he starts asking me this question, you know, can the Mises Institute or other free market organizations, can, can you produce the scientific foundation for what all these uh, politicians are talking about, free markets to solve societal problems and create the best outcomes? And he said, what's the scientific evidence for all this? Where's the proof? You know, how do we know that all, the, all this free market stuff works? So this, is, this was sort of the line of questioning. And, and of course... I had to bite my tongue and, and, and not be snarky in response because a couple of things cropped in my mind. One would be the 20th century, for example, <laughs> might be, might be a, a pretty good example. The other might be the developed world versus the undeveloped world. You might look at a map of the world and compare Angola to uh, Amsterdam. You know, that would probably be helpful evidence that markets do better. But I didn't do that because I know a hit piece when I see one. I was very civil with him, and I kind of had to explain, oh, well, you know, I, I, I realize you think that, that all the politicians in the West are enthralled to libertarianism. That's not actually the case. Uh, what they advocate is what we used to call a mixed economy, which is a mixture of, of socialism and capitalism, mixture of controls and freedom. But he's not really buying it. He thinks we live in this hyper-capitalist society. But what's so, what's so striking about this is how so many journalists like him are convinced that there's this free market revolution that's sinister and it's a plot and it's taking over education and it's taking over the political class. And of course, he, he never sees that state-funded universities, mainstream media, corporate America, government officials are all basically enormously well-funded advocates for his point of view. He doesn't see this. On the contrary, he imagines himself the underdog in all of this. Now, I, we wish that, that that were true, that the case for political liberalism and laissez-faire had been made, which is, has been made by both theory and history, had finally overcome the majority of academics, and we wish American universities were not what Mises termed the nurseries of socialism. But nonetheless, we're clearly having an impact. And I think sometimes, as Austrians... We make a mistake if we don't realize it. It's a big deal. It's a huge measure of progress. And what we don't understand oftentimes is how bad the political and academic landscape was for much of the 20th century. The progressive era coming out of the 1800s, Marxism, two horrific world wars, the Russian and Chinese revolutions, the Great Depression, the rise of Keynesianism, etc., etc., etc. The intellectual atmosphere and environment is much better for our thinking than it was 50 or 100 years ago. Now, here's Ludwig von Mises in the early 40s, writing in his memoir. He says, from time to time, I entertained the hope that my writings would bear practical fruit and point policy in the right direction. I've always looked for evidence of a change in ideology, but I never actually deceived myself. My theories explain, but cannot slow the decline of great civilization. I set out to be a reformer, but only became the historian of decline. Now, that's pretty pessimistic stuff. 
And I think he can be excused for expressing it this way, uh, having fought in World War I, having seen the fall of the Habsburg Empire in his beloved Vienna, and of course, seeing the rise of Nazism, which ultimately caused him to flee to Geneva and then later New York City. So he's writing this in the late interwar period, 1940. But if we look at the world since then, since 1940, if we look at the fall of communism, the rise of global markets, the tremendous reductions in poverty, advances in medicine, all of the unbelievable technological advances in the digital era, I think we have to realize that all of you, the younger generation, have the, an opportunity to really be architects of something, a new renaissance in Austrian economics, proper economics, rather than what Mises thought of himself as a historian of decline. So, think about this. Promoting Austrian economics has never been easier than it is right here today. For all of you, Austrian economics is completely and immediately accessible. Compare this to when Salerno or Garrison or Walter Block or even Peter Klein were your age and coming up. They had to kind of go find these sacred original texts of the Austrian school by Mises or Rothbard or Hayek and Menger. And, and you know, what you probably don't understand, all of you have grown up in a purely digital age, is how horrible bookstores used to be. I, I mean, if you went to a bookstore, it was a, probably a chain in your local mall. Now, maybe you had a great, if you lived in New York City, you had some amazing local bookstores, let's say. But you went to these bookstores, and they had a little bit, a little section on economics and business. And if you were lucky in that section, there would be something like John Kenneth Galbraith's Affluent Society. There might have been Milton Friedman's uh, Free to Choose. There might, you know, probably a few Ayn Rand books in the store, that sort of thing. That was it. And even your local college library, and certainly not your local public library, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have Mises or Rothbard when I was a kid in the 80s. So things have really changed for the better. And of course, now you don't even need books in libraries and bookstores. All of, all of the foundational stuff is online for free. But beyond that, you don't just have the books themselves available to you, which used to be actually hard to find. You have an almost unbelievable amount of articles and courses and videos and even the, the kind of study guides that Bob Murphy puts together. All of these smart people have done hours and hours and years and years of work to filter and systematize and organize this huge body of economics for you. So again, those of us who aren't academics, we don't have to do the heavy lifting of product development. It's already been done. Now it can be added to but the product's there. We just have to get better at marketing and distribution, right? That's our task. So if you look at academics today in pure econ departments at places like Auburn University, we have an entire generation of supposedly mainstream economists who fundamentally don't understand economics. They don't understand it as a social science rather than a physical science that requires testing of hypotheses. They don't understand market, that, that money could be provided as a market commodity. They don't understand that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. They don't understand that interest rates have a role effectively as prices rather than some kind of policy tool that you just set by a law or by machinations at the Fed. They can't explain booms and busts. They can't even explain the 08 and housing crash. And, and maybe worst of all, they know nothing about the history of economic thought. 
young PhD economists, brilliant young PhD economists, some of whom are in the Ivy League, some of whom are at the Federal Reserve Banks, very intelligent, high IQ, high achieving people. But nonetheless, it is though we had dropped them on an island with no historical context whatsoever and said, okay, go do economics. They know nothing about what came before them. They've never, they, they barely know who Paul Volcker was. They've never seen interest rates. They've never seen a recession. It's pretty remarkable if we think about it. Well, they have to go. <laughs> they have to go. It's not working and they need to be replaced. If, if universities won't do it, and they won't, they won't do it. If you read Brian Kaplan, you understand, they will keep this racket going as long as it works, as long as those tax dollars somehow fund. They're not going to change. They don't have to change. There's no market discipline imposed on them to change. I see Lucas looking at me with jaundiced eyes. But none of this applies to you, Mr. Engelhardt. <laughs> <laughs> the exception who proves the rule. But if they won't do it, then we have to do it ourselves via a, a million cheap digital platforms. It's just words at the end of the day. It's just words. And words are getting harder and harder to control. But before I close, and I wanted to leave some time for questions from any of you about the Mises Institute or anything related to this. Most importantly, let's drop the scrappy underdog posture the quietism, the retreatism, the remnant mentality, and let's fully restore proper economics to its rightful place in academia, in business, and really as a necessary ingredient for civilization itself. Because despite what Bernie and Ms. Ocasio-Cortez say, socialism is not the future. Socialism in this past, you guys are the future. Thank you very much. Subscribe to Mises Weekends via iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or listen on Mises.org and YouTube.